Well, out of the nine Bible readings we've heard today, we're going to spend some time now focusing on the seventh, which is on page, let me see, page 11. So please turn back to that page in the service program. And it would help me if you could keep that page open during the sermon. First, let's bow our heads and pray for God to help us learn from what he has said in his word, the Bible. A prayer based on Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What would it take for God to catch your attention? What would it take for God to catch your attention? I imagine you're a busy person. Everyone in Manhattan seems to be busy. You've got plenty to be doing, plenty of things to be thinking about. And so what would it take for God to stop you in your tracks and catch your attention? You might say, I don't believe in God, so how can he catch my attention? God doesn't exist. But I won't give up that easily because I think most skeptics agree that they can't be 100% certain that God doesn't exist. So back to my question. Since there's a possibility that God exists, that this world was created, what would it take for God to catch your attention? One answer people often give is a miraculous sign. If God performed a miraculous sign, if God intervened in their life in an unmistakably miraculous way, that would catch their attention. And that can happen. God can do that. He did that very thing in the lives of the shepherds in our seventh Bible reading, the passage from Luke chapter 2 on page 11. We're told in verse number 8 that there were shepherds out in the fields at night keeping watch over their flock, and then an angel appeared. The glory of the Lord shone around them, a blazingly bright light. And then according to verse number 13, suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army of angels praising God. Well, that would stop anyone in their tracks, wouldn't it? That kind of supernatural sign. Blazing light at midnight and a multitude of angels praising God. If that happened to you, would it catch your attention? I think it would. But we need to notice something very surprising. The angel, that first angel who appears to the shepherds, doesn't seem to think the out-in-the-fields miraculous sign is the best God can do. Look down, please, to verse 12, where the angel says, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. There's something about a baby lying in a manger 
that makes it an outstandingly memorable event, a God-given sign of his involvement in human history. This sign of the manger was both a prediction and a promise. And for the next 15 minutes or so, we're going to think about each of those features of the sign. First, it was a prediction. A prediction. The angel told the shepherds that if they went into the city of David, meaning Bethlehem, they would find a baby lying in a manger. That's a prediction. For years, I thought that a manger was a, a stable, a, a room for animals. Whenever I heard the Christmas story, I thought that's what manger meant, stable. But I was wrong. It's an old-fashioned word for a feeding trough. Maybe you all knew that already. Maybe I'm the, the only person who's ever made that mistake. Anyway, the angel is telling the shepherds, you'll find a baby lying in a feeding trough. That's a very unusual bed for a baby. You do not want to put your newborn baby, typically speaking, in a trough with some half-eaten animal feed and no doubt plenty of cow slobber residue. It's just not the kind of thing that a young mother would look at and think, now that is the perfect place to lay down my newborn baby. So those shepherds in the fields would have thought to themselves, well, that's odd, a baby in a feeding trough. And what made it even more strange was that this was no ordinary baby. The angel had just told the shepherds, there it is in verse 11, today in the city of David there has been born for you a saviour who is Christ the Lord, the long-awaited Messiah, has just been born, Israel's great hope, and where is he resting his kingly infant head he's resting it on half-eaten animal feed bits of straw and dried cow slobber what a strange and unexpected event god's promised king in a feeding trough it's a sight anyone would want to see with their own eyes and so the shepherds say to one another in verse 15 let's go straight to bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened which the lord has made known to us and that's what they go on to do. Verse 16. And they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. So the prediction is fulfilled. The angel of the Lord had told the shepherds they'd find the baby Messiah lying in a manger. And they did. It was true. Sometimes biblical predictions are fulfilled centuries after the prediction was first made. This one was fulfilled about 30 minutes after it was made, but that was still impressive. The advanced information turned out to be accurate. Now that was important, because seeing angels in the sky, praising God with the glory of the Lord shining around them, that's not actually the best kind of sign to receive. It's a sign that can quite easily be dismissed. A week later, one of the shepherds says to the others, so which one of you put funny mushrooms in our stew last week? Which one of you did it, eh? Eh? And after a bit more banter like that, 
the memory starts to seem like an unreliable hallucination. A spectacular sign with all the bells and all the whistles can quite easily be written off. But it can't be written off. Here's the point. The angel's appearance can't be written off later because the angel made a matter-of-fact prediction. City of David, baby, feeding trough. And the prediction turned out to be right. The shepherds themselves recognize the value of the prediction. Take a look at verse 20, please. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Just as had been told them. At the start of the sermon, I asked a question, what would it take for God to catch your attention? We've seen how carefully and how lastingly God captured the attention of those shepherds. And you might be thinking, yes, if God did something like that for me, he would have my attention, that prediction, and then, yes, it's accurately fulfilled. Well, God has done something just like that for you, something very similar, in fact. He's made predictions and then fulfilled them. Consider these prophecies about God's promised king, the Messiah who would bring everlasting peace to the world. He had to be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 in the Old Testament. And yet he also had to be closely associated with the region of Galilee, a completely different region of Israel. That's Isaiah chapter 9 in the Old Testament. He had to be born during the time of the Roman Empire, Daniel chapter 2 in the Old Testament. He had to be born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7 in the Old Testament. He had to be a descendant of King David, 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. He had to suffer death through piercing, Isaiah chapter 53 in the Old Testament and Zechariah chapter 12 in the Old Testament. And we're told in Psalm 22 in the Old Testament, this promised king would be pierced through his hands and his feet. But then, according to Psalm 16 in the Old Testament, he'll be raised from the dead before his body has decayed. And those are just selected prophecies. The reason I kept repeating in the Old Testament is because the Old Testament predates the birth of Jesus by several hundred years. It was completed, it was finished, it was wrapped up centuries before Jesus was born. And he fulfilled all those predictions, along with many others. My Jewish friend Zygmunt had personal reasons to be suspicious of Christianity because of things that happened in his uh, family history. But when he carried out his own research into the messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, he found they all pointed toward Jesus. Jesus fulfilled them all. He couldn't ignore it. And so Ziggy began following Jesus as his Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. In Ziggy's words, Jesus 
matched up to the messianic prophecies like a finger matches up to its own fingerprint. Now, it's true, the shepherds had the prediction fulfillment experience delivered in a special way. They had a, a kind of VIP prediction fulfillment experience. It's not so exclusive for us, but it really does have the same power. Only God can predict a whole set of very specific things about one future person and then arrange human history so that all the predictions are fulfilled in one person, Jesus. Has God caught your attention? I hope he has. Because Jesus didn't just come to wow us with the amazingness of fulfilled prediction. He came to achieve something for us, something wonderful. He came to do something about your broken relationship with God and my broken relationship with God. And that brings us to the second feature of the sign of the manger. This one will be shorter than the first. It wasn't just a prediction, it was also a promise. It was a promise. In the Bible, signs often have symbolic, poetic meaning. Take the burning bush, for example. Moses saw a small desert shrub on fire, and he noticed that it didn't burn up. The fire kept burning, but the shrub survived. God was using it to catch Moses' attention because Moses went over to get a closer look and then God spoke to him from within the burning bush. So God used it as a kind of flag to say, over here. But there was also symbolism in that sign. Think about it, a small scrawny shrub that doesn't burn up. It speaks poetically of a fallen person, a sinful, broken failure, which was how Moses saw himself at that time, coming into contact with a holy God and surviving. What a beautifully reassuring picture that sign was. It's possible for guilty, needy people, the likes of us, to come into God's presence without perishing. But that was the burning bush. What about the manger? What's the symbolism in that feeding trough used as a resting place for God's newborn king? Well, again, let's think about it. What do you put in a manger, in a feeding trough? Food. Feeding troughs are containers for food, and Jesus is food for us. God made sure Jesus was put in a feeding trough to show that he is food for us. On the night before he was put to death on the cross, Jesus took some bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. And his followers then ate that bread representing Jesus, representing his body. That ceremony, that 
eating Jesus ceremony was connected to Jesus' death on the following day. When he died, he took the punishment we deserve from God in our place so that we don't have to receive that punishment ourselves. That's why Jesus' body is like bread. It's like food that keeps people alive forever because it gives us a way to get through death without being punished by God. But you do need to eat this food. You do need to grasp hold of Jesus' death and absorb its benefits. How do you do that? It's by trusting in Jesus. That is how a person grasps hold of Jesus' death and, as it were, eats its benefits by trusting in Jesus, the benefits of his death, the forgiveness of all your wrongdoing, the powerful help of God's Spirit, eternal life. Those wonderful benefits have to be received. You have to say yes to them by saying yes to Jesus. And that's something you could do today. You could tell God that you believe Jesus is the food you need. You could make Jesus your king today because he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead and so he's a living king, a reigning king. What goes in a manger? Food. And that baby placed in a manger was food for us, eternal food. Because if you trust in Jesus' death, he'll keep you going forever with him in the perfect world that's coming. Jesus is a king who loves you so much. He gave his life so that you could have eternal life. Please feed on him. Put your trust in him before it's too late to do that. God catches our attention through predictions fulfilled in Jesus. And after he's caught our attention, he says, come and eat. Let's bow our heads to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the birth some 2,000 years ago of your son Jesus, born to die, born to give his life on the cross so that we might have eternal life through faith in him. We pray, Heavenly Father, that anyone here who is not yet following Jesus would give serious consideration to these things. And we pray, Father, for those of us who are following Jesus, that you would restore our joy in our salvation this Christmas. What a wonderful salvation it is. We praise you for it, Heavenly Father. Amen.